let's focus on our top story, the Broadway plan and bike lanes. Now, last June, the Broadway plan was approved by the city. There's a significant amount of coverage on this show and all our talk shows here at CKNW. Now, a plan basically would allow development as high as 40 stories near SkyTrain station, uh, stations and, of course, older rental stock. Often, smaller buildings would be allowed to be redeveloped into buildings that would be 15 to 20 stories high. It would allow for 50,000 more people to live in that corridor and thousands of new jobs as, as well. So it's a significant development for the city of Vancouver. Now, during that debate, the Broadway plan debate last summer, the then city council endorsed an amendment in support of adding new protected bike lanes along the length of Broadway, which would be timed with the completion of the SkyTrain Millennium Line Broadway extension. Now, the city of Vancouver staff have come back to council uh, presently with a new council and have strongly recommended against the idea. Uh, after all, of course, you're going to allow wider sidewalks for pedestrians. You want patios as well. Uh, would there be enough room for adding bike lanes as well? And essentially, this could lead to, of course, six vehicle lanes down to four. So there's a significant, of course, conversation and debate around this issue. Joining me now is the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade's uh, President and CEO, Bridget Anderson. Today, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade weighed in on the issue when it comes to adding a bike lane along Broadway. Bridget, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I wanted to sort of uh, lay the basics down for our listeners because, uh, you know, we often hear about the Broadway plan and, and of course, uh, what it means overall for the economy and housing and jobs. Uh, why did the, um, the Board of Trade today feel they needed to weigh in on this issue? Well, you know, the Broadway corridor is the second largest employment center in British Columbia. So it's an incredibly important area for businesses, but also for residents. And so we know that council is going to be looking at the transportation options, and we are concerned that it is going to consider adding bike lanes. And our concern really is, you know, it needs to be a balanced approach. Bicycles are important, and getting around the city bicycle is uh, through on bicycle is really important. But if you look at it, there are cycle lanes on 10th Avenue, one block away, and then also just to the north of Broadway, around 7th or 8th. So there's already two corridors for bikes. So taking away space on the Broadway corridor doesn't make much sense. We need that avenue open for traffic, both for cars and commercial trucks, for public transit, for emergency vehicles. We also need space for, as we did support originally, and we continue to support, more pedestrian space and more patio space. So it really needs to be a a common sense, balanced approach by council. Uh, So you're saying the bike lanes have to give, something has to give along the way. We have a set amount of space uh, for that corridor. And what should give is the bike lane. You can ride your bike on 10th Avenue, just one block away. You can ride your bike on 7th or 8th Avenue, just a couple of blocks away. There are two corridors already for cyclists. And so Broadway should be kept for businesses and residents, pedestrians, for patios. But also it's such a vital corridor for the movement of goods and people. And adding bike lanes and taking away some of that the, um, the roadway means that it'll be just an incredibly congested area. And what happens then for an emergency vehicle trying to get there or for transit or even for the movement of goods and people through commercial vehicles and and passenger vehicles? It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Now, some would argue, wait a minute here, you make a very good point, but one could also argue that, look, this is a major thoroughfare and part of commuting in this city 
isn't just cars and trucks and the old way of doing things. Yes, commercial commercial vehicles move our goods and services, but cycling is a part of trans our transportation network. Cycling is a so part of Tenth Avenue. <laughs> Ride a block away on Tenth Avenue, or go to the north of Broadway. There are two existing corridors right now that I think are much safer for cyclists too. Quite frankly, I mean Broadway is a pretty heavy traffic area, mm-hmm. and taking away space where you could be offering more space for pedestrians and for patios. Patios are very important for businesses along that corridor as well. Uh, I just want to step away just from this issue for a moment. Yesterday, we we focused on the Broadway plan as well. Uh, The city was talking about the the city staff at this point recommending in their report, perhaps approving maybe five high rises a year. Uh, They don't want to displace too many people. The the Minister of Housing, Ravi Kalin, was on this show after um, that original conversation, and he says, get on with it. We have plenty Mm -hmm. of rental protection. Uh, in in our provincial legislation, you need to build more and quit uh, sort of tiptoeing around the issue. Uh, your thoughts as a board of trade in regards to what the city should be doing in regards to actually uh, approving some of these high rises and even some of these uh, uh, these buildings that may be fifteen to twenty stories high. Well, let me give you some context first. We have over five thousand members, and for many many months, the majority of our members have been saying that. Housing and the cost of housing is their biggest challenge when it comes to attracting, retaining talent. And we know we've got a labor shortage right now. So it is vital for all levels of government to do what they can to increase the supply of housing as quickly as possible. We also have an influx of hundreds of thousands of newcomers coming into our province and into our city. In fact, the population of Vancouver grew by about 3%, almost 3%, which is the strongest rate of growth since 2000. And so we need housing. We need rental housing. We need um, housing for families. We need housing, high-density housing. We need all kinds of housing options. And so I agree with the minister on this. The city needs to get on with it, and the province and the federal government, everybody has to work together to build as much housing as quickly as possible, rental and otherwise. Do you... um I know you conduct a lot of interviews and you deal with many stakeholders uh, here in the city in, regard, in regards to trade. But do you get frustrated personally? I mean, the reason I ask in regards to this city is here we are debating bike lanes. We were talking the other day about how many buildings we're going to approve. This is after probably, what, 18 months of debating the Broadway plan. Why does everything seem like it just moves so slowly in this city? Why can't we just come up with a plan, which we did last June, and get on with it? It just seems like every little thing turns into a fight. First, it's about, well, we've approved this plan, but only five buildings a year. We don't want to be uh, displacing too many people. Now we're debating bike lanes on Broadway. It just nothing seems to move quickly in this region. I think that's probably true of a lot of jurisdictions um, in recent years. And I I think in part because of social media, louder stakeholders. And I, I think that kind of consultation is important. You have to have really broad consultation to make sure that everybody is along for the ride. But I would say one thing about Vancouver is that You know, sometimes in our, um, I think, our desire to bring everybody along and to find consensus that nothing gets done very quickly. And we we have got an opportunity in front of us in the next several years uh, in Vancouver with a number of sporting events and other uh, arts and culture events and the number of newcomers that we're welcoming to our region that we have a real opportunity to put Vancouver on the map. And we need to start celebrating the facts that we're, we, we want to create jobs and we want to support jobs. We want to improve affordability and we want to make this a livable region. And so 
it's it's vital when it, we don't get bogged down in the details about this. This Broadway plan has been consulted and has been debated for months and months and months. It is time to get on with it. Mm-hmm. It is time to build more housing. And as I said, there are two existing bike corridors. Let those stay where they are and allow for the movement of vehicle and goods and people and for businesses to have patios if that's what they'd like to do. Bridget, thank you for your time today. Thanks so much, Jess. I don't know how to describe uh, our next guest. He's a beachcomber, he's an artist, and he's a bit of a social media star as well. Steve LaRocca lives in Richmond and has been beachcombing since 2018 and has found many an interesting item through his travel. Some would call what he's found as trash and junk, but he's made it into art. Uh, he documents uh, his findings on social media under the handle Fraser River Finds, and you can find him on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Uh, Steve joins us now. Steve, thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you for having me, Jess. So how did you get started? Uh, and I, Is this a hobby is the best way to describe it? How did you get started? Uh, you know, I know you said it was 2018 when you began, but how did, did what convinced you to start beachcombing? Well, um, it, it certainly started out as a hobby, but now it seems more like an addiction. <laughs> um, you know, I live uh, alongside the river mm-hmm. here, and then I've also worked traditionally alongside the river. So I spent a lot of time alongside the river. And, you know, if you stop for a few minutes or go for a walk, it's hard not to notice things in and along the shoreline. And uh, you start picking them up, you find some cool stuff, and you're off. Mm-hmm. And what kind of unique things have you found? Um, well, that's a uh, loaded question. I've found uh, everything from, like, a military flare out uh, along the um, Sturgeon Banks. I've found um, a lot of vintage, vintage stuff. If you look at my Twitter, you'll find a lot of vintage Air Canada, a lot of vintage plastic bags, and uh, certainly a lot of bottle caps and um, all kinds of stuff. Well, I've seen some of the th- stuff you've posted, and you've turned uh, some of this, as I say, is trash, and, and uh, most people would say even junk, but you've turned, <laughs> turned it into uh, unique art. I mean, it's, the visuals are wonderful. One man's garbage. <laughs> that is true. So how often do you go out uh, beachcombing? Is it something you do daily, or is it a once-a-week kind of thing? Uh, well, because of proximity with, you know, getting to and from work and where I live, I'm out uh, along the waterways probably at least once a day. And sometimes it's not uncommon for me to hit multiple stops. Uh, as for actually bringing a bag out and a, doing a proper beach comb, that's probably just a few times a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get discouraged? And what I mean by that, you just mentioned, you know, lots of, you pick up plastic bags. Uh, I'm sure there's probably been syringes and things of that sort. I mean, do you get discouraged uh, because of what we as humanity, as people sometimes throw out? It uh, can be discouraging. You know, plastic is a very important part of our lives. You know, it's in the phones we're using, it's in the cars we drive, it's in the clothes we wear. And uh, it's a shame that a lot of the stuff, you know, winds up in culverts and gets flushed down drains. You find a lot of dental picks. I remember, I remember, I remember growing up, we used to have toothpicks, right? They're made mm-hmm. out of wood. Now you've got these dental picks with the little bits of floss, and you've got the needles and um, feminine applicators and lighters and all kinds of stuff. So it's, uh, it's up and down. Uh, in regards to uh, your following, uh, I think you're up to 50,000 followers now on some of your uh, social media accounts. Oh, on the TikTok, definitely. Uh, what kind of comments do you get from people? Uh, depends what the, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm just the messenger in a lot of this stuff. And a lot of people look at me like I'm going to save the world. And I'm certainly not trying to be uh, Mr. Environmentalist. Um, 
I get a lot of a lot of words of encouragement and um, a lot of why don't you? I mean, you can't clean up everything. You'd spend all day out there. You wouldn't make it ten feet if you decided to be Mr. Heroin clean up the uh, water side one day. So it's definitely mixed. You get the good and you get the bad. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're always picking up a lot of a lot of junk along the way. What can be done? You see a lot every day, obviously, when you're out. Uh, what do you think government needs to do? Whether it be uh, provincial, federal, even municipal in your community, what do you, what would you like to see done? Well, I like the uh, municipal aspect because I'm a firm believer that we got to take care of what's in our own backyard. You know, with our own uh, postal code. A lot of people get worried about the great garbage patch and what's happening overseas and everything like that. But we've really got to concentrate on what we're doing how we utilize plastic and what we do to get rid of it. Probably what would be best would be some kind of campaign. You know, we used to have Smokey the Bear and stuff like that. Maybe they need to have Smokey the Salmon. It doesn't want cigarette butts in the river and all that kind of thing. And w- is there anything specific you think the, the locally that should be done beyond what you've just told me here? Is there anything they need to do in regards to greater resources, perhaps volunteers out uh, picking garbage like you do? What would you like to see done specifically from municipal government? Well, for the municipal government, maybe they should, uh, you know, I've often thought, especially like in the downtown east side, maybe there should be some kind of a reward or a compensation for like returned needles and stuff like that. Can you imagine if somebody could make a few cents for every needle they pick up, you know, and and give to a dispensary instead of it winding down a, you know, a wash basin or a culvert or something? Mm -hmm. And maybe we should have some art installations that could get somebody like Fraser River Vines to come out and uh, utilize some of the stuff and uh, build some kind of, you know, you, uh, when I look at uh, your social media feed, y- y- the art that you create from some of this junk that you pick up off, off um, f- from the Fraser River, it's done so very well. It's, it's amazing. Like, how long does it take you to put together a design like that? Uh, because you've done this with spoons, I see, syringes, and it's actually very lovely pictures that you take. I mean, how long does it take you to put something like that together? Uh, sometimes, you know, it depends on, on how big some of it is. Uh, a lot of it's smoke and mirrors. You know, anything you see, like, on a green background is usually something I've built, taken a picture of, and then swiped clean. But uh, I actually do that stuff relatively quick. I just pick up and play stuff. I guess it just comes naturally. And when it comes to stuff like the needles, I should let people know that they've been uh, taken apart. The plungers and the caps have been super glued on there. Mm-hmm. And I think they make a real loud and important statement in yeah, the art pieces. They absolutely do. Uh, Steve, thank you for joining us today and uh, sharing your story. Uh, and I highly recommend uh, everybody, please check out Fraser River Finds. You can find uh, that uh, account on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as well. Steve, thank you for your time today. Okay, and thank you on behalf of the Fraser River as well and all the ecosystems that depend on it. Most MPs in the House of Commons voted in favour of calling for a public inquiry into foreign election interference today, which of course ramps up pressure on the federal government to follow, uh, following f- fresh allegations about China's alleged meddling in Canada's affairs. The NDP motion, which was introduced by New Westminster Member of Parliament Peter Julian, passed with 172 votes in favour and 149 votes against. Um, MP uh, Peter Julian will be joining us at 5 o'clock to discuss uh, the issue. Now, the the vote itself is non-binding, but it does speak to the, the will of the majority of voting MPs, which should raise pressure on the government uh, to call for a full public inquiry. Now, today's vote comes um, a day after Toronto Area Member of Parliament 
Han Dong's uh, shocking departure from the Liberal caucus. Uh, Mr. Mr. Dong, it should be noted, voted in favour of today's motion, uh, but he is now sitting as an independent after Global News published a story yesterday alleging he advised a senior Chinese diplomat in February of 2021 that Beijing should hold off on freeing uh, the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael uh, Spaver, uh, the two Canadians that were held in China uh, for up to about two years. Now, Mr. Dong uh, denies the allegations. Uh, he spoke uh, late yesterday when the story broke. Uh, the story, of course, was written by Sam Cooper. He was on our show at 5 o'clock yesterday. Uh, soon after that interview, um, Mr. Dong uh, announced that he was stepping down as a Liberal Member of Parliament. Take a listen. To my family, and in particular, my parents, who brought us here to Canada. To my wife, Sophie, and my kids, I love you. I thank you for all the support and love you give me. The truth will protect us. I have informed the Prime Minister and the leadership of the Liberal Party Caucus that I will be sitting as an independent uh, Mr. Dong confirmed to Global that he had a discussion with the uh, Consul General in Toronto, Han Tao, but he has denied that he advised Beijing delay releasing uh, the two Michaels. Well, joining me now to talk about uh, what has transpired over the last 24 hours is Kareem Alam. He is a partner at Fairview Strategy and a former Chief of Staff to the Mayor of Vancouver. He was on our show a couple of days ago talking about what we needed to do as a region, as a province and as a country in regards to uh, protecting uh, our government from foreign interference. Uh, Kareem, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on again, Josh. Uh, your thoughts first uh, and foremost on the announcement from Handong and the allegations that were out there. What was your reaction when you first uh, heard uh, what transpired? The, the allegations are fairly seri- extremely serious and uh, very concerning and, and very troubling. But we have a standard here in Canada of procedural fairness and due process. And uh, this is now a person who has been convicted in the court of public opinion without procedural fairness. Um, this is, again, why uh, I believe uh, an inquiry is important. Um, in the absence of an inquiry, intelligence, evidence and uh, accusations are being given equal weight. Um, we need a judge at a head of a commission, at a head of an inquiry, to be able to sift through what is credible, what is not. And the sooner we can have an inquiry is the sooner we can get to work on meaningful legislation that empowers CSIS to be able to protect our Canadian sovereignty. And Jazz, and to all the listeners out there, the clock is ticking on this before the next election. Mm -hmm. Uh, Listening to your comments, do do you worry that there may be a bit of, um, how do I say this, McCarthyism uh, occurring? uh, And not any specific story, a specific individual, but the totality of our conversation uh, may be too broad in general and those accusations that are directed at individuals or, or, or groups of individuals, uh, you know, it can't be proven in a court of law at this point. Do you, do you worry that, that, that we are sort of heading in that direction to a certain degree? We can, and that's what I find troubling about the news of the last 24 hours. There's a ton of media coverage, uh, uh, scrutiny, uh, uh, and the trajectory and, and the potential for this to start to turn into hysteria um, is definitely there. That we definitely want to avoid, a, as a country, going into uh, a McCarthy-style red scare search and destroy. That's why uh, having an inquiry uh, uh, right away is so critical and so important. Uh, we need guardrails on this discussion. We need a referee and an arbiter 
to ensure that the discussions and the conversation, the intelligence and information that's being gathered is accurate and that we aren't painting an entire community with a single brush. Mm -hmm. Uh the information that is leaking, not just in yesterday's story, but other stories, uh, not only on Global News, but the Globe and Mail as well. I mean, does this not to a certain degree also say that the security establishment is frustrated by the present setup of our national security institutions? Or number two, that that our elected officials and perhaps the way the system is set up, we are not addressing or responding to actionable intelligence. And that's why this is all getting leaked out now to the media, because not enough has been done that we've been sleepwalking to this for too long. It's quite, it's quite likely that uh, uh, there's a frustration uh, uh, with uh, the slow pace of change to give CSIS, the RCMP, the tools they need to be able to do to protect our Canadian sovereignty. Um, and as a result, whistleblowers have come forward and started leaking documents. Whistleblowers deserve credit and protection, um, but civil society demands process and procedural fairness. And this all ties back to the fact that we need an inquiry uh, uh, immediately. As Canadians, we all have a duty uh, to protect our sovereignty, but we also have a critical duty uh, to one another. Um, all this hysteria that's potentially building up, the only release valve for this um, to get the justice that the whistleblowers are looking for, to get the justice that Canadians are looking for, is a public inquiry. Hmm. Uh, do you think we can do both? What I mean by that, a public inquiry takes time. It'll drag on for a very long time. It moves very slowly. It's like a giant freighter. Do you think we can have two tracks? One, where an inquiry does occur, and also, through our, our, our committee work at the federal level, we are able to make changes that are quick and can respond to the, uh, the immediate needs as an inquiry makes its way through all the thicket of information that will be there, all the stuff that they have to go through, plus they have to sort of, you know, thoughtfully uh, go through all of it and then uh, come back with their findings. This is a year-long process, at, as, and that's if it's fast. Yeah. Uh, but can you do a two-track kind of uh, uh, an investigation where committees deal with the issues that are immediate and let the inquiry go as it goes as well? Yes, and we absolutely must do that. All an inquiry will do is look at the past, uh, but we need another process that looks at the future, and that future looks like new legislation, whether it looks like a blue-ribbon uh, multi-partisan panel, whether it is a committee of uh, MPs and, and, and senators um, uh, receiving advice and testimony from academic experts and political experts uh, to, to suggest legislation uh, to strengthen laws. We can definitely have a process where we have two waves of updated legislation, one from this quick, uh, uh, forward-looking process, and one that accepts the recommendations coming out of the inquiry. Hmm. Now, I found really interesting when you were on the show the other day, you talked about um, the issue of third-party financing. It's not just foreign interference. Foreign interference may be clandestine, but it can also be financial, which is you finance opposition uh, from abroad. Some of it is good for democracy. Let's say you're having a debate over environmental issues or, or, or issues of that sort. But it can also be detrimental because it can undermine the discourse as well. Is that part of the conversation you think we should be having as well, beyond just national security and foreign meddling? It's who's funding this stuff as well. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's a, been a major concern of a lot uh, of a lot of people for a lot of time. Uh, uh, the head of elections, BC, actually uh, filed a report a, a couple of years ago that talked about within the context of the province of British Columbia that the weakness of our third party rules and the lack of transparency on the financing of third party advertising can lead to foreign interference. So this is a provincial official whose responsibilities aren't supposed to look at foreign interference, being concerned about the holes in our legislation in the province of British Columbia being so big uh, that it is a potential for foreign interference. So that's just not my opinion. That's the opinion of the head of elections, BC. When you were on this show last, you also talked about the fact that there's very little security or vetting of uh, bureaucrats, uh, public servants, other public servants, and elected officials. There's not enough of it. And you use yourself as an example, as a former chief of staff to the, the mayor of Vancouver, but you've involved in political leadership races on the provincial level and the federal level as well. I mean, what... You know, when you talk about what needs to happen, it speaks to a giant bureaucracy that needs to be created, I, I would argue. It speaks to a lot more dollars being put towards a CSIS that may look at not only domestic, but another agency that may look at foreign uh, for, foreign interference as well. Like, it's a little of both. But what you're talking about here, it means creating a much larger bureaucracy and process to protect our institutions. And do you think Canadians are ready for the dollars that need to be spent to do all of this? It may not cost as much as uh, uh, we think it is just to have the ability for a campaign manager or chief of staff like me to be able to pick up the phone and uh, be able to security clear uh, 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 an employee. Uh, that research is already there. That uh, evidence and that, and that uh, viewpoint is already there. But when it comes to national security and protecting our sovereignty, uh, that is fundamentally foremost the primary job of government. Um, and uh, I'm not sure we can put a price tag on it. Uh, there are large gaping holes in, in, in being able to uh, uh, plug up the legislation that's allowing uh, uh, some of this drama that we're seeing in Ottawa persist um, uh, in terms of legislation, but also in terms of funding. Uh, but also we've got to be broadening up this conversation to looking at how is our military intelligence apparatus uh, uh, set up um, as well, too. So, this is a broad, larger picture national security discussion. And I've generally felt that Canada has, has underfunded uh, its national security services, whether it's the Ministry of Defence, uh, CSIS, or the RCMP. Uh, we aren't hitting our uh, 2% NATO commitment of, uh, of, 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 of GDP being contributed to our security apparatuses. So uh, we're definitely behind where the rest of our G7 allies are in terms of spending on this. Kareem, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Josh. Well, today, Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne uh, sent a letter to the CRTC calling for them to review uh, international roaming rates, uh, the price hikes by Bell and Telus earlier uh, this month, uh, Bell, uh, sorry, Telus, uh, earlier uh, this month said it was going to raise its prices by a dollar to sixteen dollars a day for international roaming, and increase its U.S. roaming from two by two dollars to fourteen dollars a day. Uh, BCE said it was raising its U.S. roaming rate prices as well, and their international roaming fees. Now, customers of carriers in European Union countries do not pay any roaming fees while traveling to other member states as a result of the EU's Rome-like-at-home regulations, which was extended by 10 years 
in July of 2022. But here in Canada, of course, we continue to pay. We still have significantly higher uh, cell phone costs compared to the EU and many other um, uh, customers in the United States. But here we keep paying, we keep paying, and and we put up with it. Uh, Joining me now to talk a little bit about today's announcement uh, by the industry minister is Andy Brewer. He's a tech and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. Hello, Andy. Hi, Jazz. I'm trying really hard, really, really hard not to get angry uh, about this. Uh, I know they announced this earlier. I'm glad the minister is asking for a review. But just at the end of the day, this has been going on for, what, a couple of decades now. I still think we pay too much for cell phones in this country. Uh, The roaming fee fee example, once again, is uh, another reason why we need more competition. That's my rant. That's all I'm going to say. Your thoughts on this? I mean, do you think this is going to accomplish anything? Well, I'm trying to refrain my, myself from ranting jazz because, like, you're right. We've been talking about this for years. And, like, the CRTC has been said we're going to try to lower the prices down. But it seems that the telcos always find a back door to circumvent it, to try to gouge money from us. And the way that it happens in this situation is in the wireless code, they, the, the CRTC has no control on the prices that the carriers can, can charge for roaming prices. The only thing that in the wireless code that says that they're supposed to do is they mandated that when you are roaming, you get a text message to notify you. And that's because years ago, you never had that. And people would travel and then come back and have these huge roaming costs. And they didn't know they were roaming at the time. So they, they mandated that. They also mandated that after about $100 of roaming, mm-hmm. you'll get a text message notification to let you know that you've, you've hit this limit. But they can't control the prices. And this is what – and they did it just before spring break jazz. Like, that was not a coincidence. And the telcos just found another revenue stream and a, a way to circumvent it to, to get it. How many people have come back from vacation after a couple of weeks? You get your cell phone bill, and it's enormous. And, it, and we have to pay it. You know, there's nothing we can do. So they're, they're just – leveraging that. I, I got a, a rude uh, reminder of that. I visited a friend who lives right by the Canada-U.S. border in South Surrey. I went over to, to uh, his place for a Super Bowl get-together and I was there for probably three, four hours and uh, I noticed on my bill uh, uh, the following uh, following that visit, I, I got a $25 fee because somehow my phone uh, was linked to the um, American carrier across the border, even though I was in Canada. It took two calls and 45 minutes of waiting twice with Tele before they actually reversed it. But it was like, and I'm a good customer and, and I have other uh, uh, TELUS accounts, so they were able to do so. But if I had just had a cell phone account, I think they would have just stuck me with the charge. Uh, and, you know, you could have changed a few things in your settings, so be it. But this is the kind of things that annoys you when you're a customer and then to get dinged even at the border for roaming charges, even though I didn't cross the border in this case. But there should be an agreement, even if you do go into the United States, that you don't pay extra or it'd be significantly less than, than, than what we're paying now. I think it's fabulous what they've done in the European Union that you don't get uh, a dinged uh, extra, as you mentioned. It's 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 uh, this is where we should be going. It seems to me that EU, when it comes to technology, even challenging social media on the issue of Google and some of these other companies, and and in regards to the cell phone thing as well, they're miles ahead of what we're doing here in Canada. Uh, absolutely, and it, the thing is, it doesn't matter where you live on the globe. You you need a smartphone these days just to do even government services. And I just don't understand why they are trying to gouge us when we try to travel. Just like you said, we should be able to travel to, like, the United States without having to pay roaming fees. Like, they are our neighbors. So many people travel there all the time. Um, it, it, to me, it just doesn't make sense. And I, I'm 
going to be watching what the CRTC does very carefully with this, because it was the industry minister who had to send this letter. Like, they, they got to be more proactive, Jazz, because we've been talking about lowering these prices. I think you're right. I think we need a fourth carrier. We have what's called MVNOs, mobile virtual network operators. A lot of people are familiar with this because of Mint Mobile in the U.S., which mm-hmm. Ryan Reynolds owns. But look what happened over there. As soon as he got big enough, as soon as they had enough customers, they got swallowed up by AT&T, which was the network they were running their entire mobile operation from. But, you know, that just happens over and over again. We don't see real, real competition. We need, like, a Verizon to come to Canada, which they hinted years ago coming to Canada. We need one of those before we can actually see decent prices and competition. Yeah, I think we'll see some with Quebec or potentially buying Freedom Mobile if it is approved by the CRTC. I think you'll see some of that. But I think the real, uh, the real change we'll see, as you say, we allow American carriers to come into this country. And I can already hear the squawking from TELUS and Bell uh, and Rogers uh, saying, oh, no, no, we got to have strong Canadian telcos, blah, blah, blah. I tell you, bring in one big American carrier, those prices will drop very quickly in a significant way as well. So you can actually see some real changes. A cell phone is is just part of our industrial policy. It's part of real everyday life. You just need it for for everything now. And the thing that we're getting dinged the way we are, I just think it's not acceptable. We've accepted the silliness and nonsense from these telcos for way, way too long. Andy, thanks for your time, my friend. Thanks, Chaz. Well, earlier today, uh, we were talking uh, in our editorial meeting about uh, SkyTrain uh, and world-class cities and having a 24-hour transit system, specifically SkyTrain. Uh, There's a great article in Vancouver is Awesome uh, that Ali Turner wrote uh, talking about uh, some of the challenges that are there for our local system to operate uh, on a 24-7 basis. But it got us thinking that uh, could we and do we need a 24-7 SkyTrain system, and especially and including Friday and Saturday nights? Uh, Joining me to talk a little bit about this is our our producers, Stephen Chang and Ryan Hall. Both who uh, commute to work uh, on SkyTrain and use it regularly. So we thought we'd talk a little bit about uh, the system. Welcome, Ryan and Stephen. Hello, Jazz. Hello. Hello. So, so let's talk about this. Uh, first of all, Ryan, let me st- start with you. You're, you're on SkyTrain every day coming in? Every single weekday of my life, yes. <laughs> how do you find it overall? Uh, how do I find SkyTrain? It's yeah. great when there's no issues, but uh, when there's track issues, then it's uh, it's not so great then, Jazz. Yeah, yeah. You, get, you know, you get a lot of big crowds. I'll, oh, I'd rather be in a vehicle, to be honest. Uh, but I will say TransLink and uh, the, the SkyTrain in general, uh, it is more efficient. Like, it is faster for me to probably take the train from King George all, all the way to Granville. It's about 40 minutes total-ish. Um, but uh, again, when it works, it works like a dream. And when it doesn't, it, it does doesn't. not work like Most a dream. Most of the time, it, it works, right? I mean, there's going to be probably 10, 20% of the time might frustrate too many people, uh, maintenance yeah. issues, all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, maintenance, right? oh, single tracking just messes like everything up. Or if there's one issue along the line somewhere, maybe it's in New West, maybe it's in Vancouver, Burnaby, sir, it just messes everything up, especially when it snows. Like that was quite the issue when it was snowing and <laughs> they closed down the whole sky bridge. I couldn't even get across the bridge. I couldn't now, get to work. Uh, in my defense, uh, uh, I, I know snowstorms very well because I had to spend eight or nine hours out there one day. So it doesn't help too much on roads either when, when it comes to snow in this city. But let's talk a little bit about this 24-7 issue. Ryan, uh, sorry, Stephen, uh, for you, do you like the idea? Uh, 24 hours, Jazz, yes, I think it's a good idea because there's a lot of people who go out 
especially in the weekends who are out late night all into the hours of 3 a.m. or even later than that, uh, that might have a hard time taking a cab going back home or going to where they want to go to enjoy their nightlife. Um, sometimes ride hailing is expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets really busy as well. Uh, sometimes designated drivers don't want to be designated. So I think a SkyTrain uh, system that lasts past 1 a.m. or 2 or just a 24-hour system would be much more convenient. And it just helps people get around easier, especially when it's late night. So I can see why it would be helpful. Yeah, there. I mean, look, on, on the service of it, I'd be supportive of it as well. But uh, on this article that was written by Ali Turner uh, basically said that this, the system itself, the, some of the infrastructure along the line is 40 years old. So it requires daily maintenance, most of which is done at night. And they do need that time and uh, to, to check all the track components and everything else, number one. And even if they just allowed Friday and Saturday night uh, SkyTrain to run, it wouldn't allow them enough time to provide the maintenance work that's required throughout the week. So I understand that. And the other things I think sometimes people forget is, it, well, it's driverless. There are two budgets, right? There's the budget that actually builds the SkyTrain, if you look at the uh, Broadway extension. And those are one-time costs, but it takes a while to put that money together from the province and and Ottawa usually, and the billions of dollars required to put a a SkyTrain system in or an extension in. Then, of course, there is the operating cost, so a separate budget. And that still costs lots of money. And is it worth doing for two days? Now, I know people always say, and I used to cover this as a reporter, what about the nighttime economy? What about Friday and Saturday nights? My question would be, how many people actually would use SkyTrain or would need to use SkyTrain if they're out and about, like a thousand, maybe two thousand people, let's say downtown Vancouver, probably around there. But maybe would you think that if there was a twenty-four hour system on the weekends, would it uh, kind of encourage more people to be able to go out during those times? Yeah, to a certain degree. Uh, but I'm I'm just wondering, is it worth it at this time for operating costs to spend all that money? Uh, for a thousand, two thousand, three thousand people, I, I get spending the money. I know they spend the money. It goes towards taxes as well downtown, and I want people to have fun. But you still have the taxis. You still have ride hailing now, which is a bit more flexible as well. You have more people living downtown, so we can walk into some of these areas here as well. Uh, in the perfect world, yeah, I would say let's support it. But if you have an expensive system, and SkyTrain system is not expensive, it's a Cadillac system, it's a great system, I love it, and I would love to say 24-7 all the time, I still think the operating costs and the challenges of running a system with a city of 2.5 million people, which still needs more lines, more uh, more dollars spent on it, I'm not sure 24-7 should be the priority. Tell me I'm wrong. You're wrong. You, <laughs> you sir, are wrong. Like, it's not just people coming into downtown just for the weekend, just to go out and party and whatnot. You know, it's also people that work, you know, downtown or work late nights or yes. work, you know, shift work. I, mm-hmm. We both work in radio. I've done 5 a.m. shifts. There's no SkyTrain running at 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so you either got to drive or get dropped off or figure it out, you know. Uh, and, and, and not only that, but Vancouver, is it a world-class city, Jazz? Uh, we keep telling We've ourselves that. we had the Olympics. We are a nice mid-tier city. The Women's World Cup. We're going to host another World no. Cup. If it's a world-class city, maybe we should kind of invest a little bit more in sort of the transit system to make it, you know, run well, a little longer. I would actually, I would go as far as to say we should be always building uh, on our SkyTrain system. Like this Broadway line is great, but we should actually be looking at the, obviously the line in Surrey that's going to Langley. We should be looking at a connection at King George going all the way to King George down to South Surrey. There's a significant amount of development in South Surrey especially. The Langley line, once it's done, we should be looking at it pushing up to 200, at least to the highway there. So there's a park and ride coming in for, uh, from Abbotsford and Chilliwack or consider it just driving it down all the way to let's say Abbotsford, to be blunt – 
Uh, we should also be looking at a, a line uh, on the North Shore. Uh, the North Shore communities are growing in a significant way. Even the Broadway extension, we only have enough money right now to get to Arbutus. Imagine stopping at Arbutus when you've got the second largest, de- second busiest destination for traffic after downtown. It's UBC. That line has to go straight to UBC. We still have to find more money for that. So I'm just saying we got to build this, and the cost to build it is in the billions, and that's where the priority should be. And when you can find the dollars for the operating cost to do so, then let's talking about, talk about 24-7. We're going to get there. Don't get me wrong. This city is busy. It's getting busier. It's going to get bigger. Another million people moving here by 2050. But I'm not sure today is the day when we have a 24-7 system. That's uh, the MLA in me speaking because I know the cost constraints are significant. I'd love to do it, wave a wand and do it. I just think the cost constraints are really, really tough right now. Maybe we can start with 24 hours on the weekends first and then leave the weekdays alone. Yeah, yeah. Although I like Ryan's idea. that it, it, I mean, he has a very good point. It's what about the folks who just work at 5 a.m. or work till 2 or 3 or 4 in the morning as well? I mean, that's probably more of them than there are even people who are out on Friday and Saturday night. But it does speak to the need, and we are eventually going to get their questions when we do it. So there you go. Ryan, Stephen, thank you. Thank you. You are welcome, sir. That is Ryan Lee Hall and Stephen Chang, our show producers, and also uh, SkyTrain users as well. Let's revisit uh, our top story today. Most MPs in the House of Commons voted in favour of calling for a public inquiry into into a foreign election interference, which of course will ramp up the pressure on the federal government following fresh allegations about China's alleged meddling in Canada's affairs. The motion, it was an NDP motion, passed with 172 votes in favour and 149 votes against. Now, the vote is non-binding, but of course, it'll put uh, more pressure on the government uh, to actually head towards uh, calling for a public inquiry. Now, the vote comes the day after Toronto Area MP Han Dong, uh, Han Dong's shocking departure from the Liberal Caucus. Yesterday, we had Sam Cooper on a few hours after he broke the story in regards to uh, Mr. Dong. Uh, we learned, uh, ba- based on that story, based on two senior security um, officials, uh, whose names were not mentioned, uh, they allege that in February of 2021 that uh, uh, Mr. Dong spoke spoke to a Chinese diplomat in Toronto and basically uh, told them to hold off on freeing Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver, the two Canadians being held by China at that time. Now, it's important to note that Mr. Dong denied the allegations. He did step down as a Liberal Member of Parliament. He is sitting now as an Independent. He spoke late yesterday. Take a listen. To my family and in particular, my parents, who brought us here to Canada. To my wife, Sophie, and my kids, I love you. I thank you for all the support and love you gave me. The truth will protect us. Joining me now to talk about today's vote and the broader conversation around uh, Chinese interference is Peter Julian, uh, NDP Member of Parliament for New Westminster Burnaby. Mr. Julian, thank you for joining us. Oh, good to be with you again. Uh, first and foremost, why was this important? It is a non-binding uh, vote. But why was it important for yourself, uh, the NDP and others, the opposition, uh, to uh, have this vote today? Well, the, the NDP brought it forward, Jagmeet Singh, and I, I was the sponsor of the motion because uh, what it does is, is two things. First, it sends an undeniable uh, message to the government, pushes the government to actually put in place the public inquiry, all of the political parties in the House of Commons, uh, with the exception of the Liberal Party, 
and all of the independent members voted in favor of the NDP motion. So we, we now have that that moral suasion of uh, of four parties, including the Green Party and the Bloc, uh, Conservatives and the NDP, the independents, all saying uh, to the Liberal government, you've got to put this into place. Secondly, as you know, a special advisor, a reporter, has been appointed by uh, by Mr. Trudeau, that it, who is supposed to uh, report by the uh, third week of May. Mm-hmm. That's David Johnstone, the former Governor General, who was appointed by Stephen Harper. And this also sends a very clear message to him that uh, he he has uh, another few weeks before he makes that decision about recommending a public inquiry. Uh, but I've no doubt that that will be considered as he looks at that, so that we can actually put this this public inquiry into place. There is no doubt that there's concerns about about Chinese state actors and Chinese government trying to influence uh, Canadian the democracy. We've we've heard uh, widespread concerns about Russian state actors and the Russian government. There have been concerns uh, issued about the Iranian government, the Indian government. This is uh, important to put a public inquiry into place so that we can examine all of those elements. Canadians uh, can get answers to the questions they ask, and we can ensure uh, that our elections continue to be free and fair right across this country. Do you think an inquiry is the right way to go? And what I mean by that is some of the challenges are immediate, and a public inquiry takes time uh, to have the right people speaking. It takes a lot of time to digest everything that will be um, uh, introduced and discussed, and then, of course, to put a report together. That is... a uh, uh, easily a year-long process, probably longer. Uh, can, do, do you think we need a two-track uh, response to this? Or do you think, uh, when, what I mean by that is committees looking at the immediate challenges, what can be done today and now over the next two or three months? Uh, or do you think we know, or do we need to go in the direction of a full inquiry? Uh, th- that's an excellent question. Uh, and I, I think you're right. It, it takes two tracks. There are things that the government can be putting into place Immediately, for example, a foreign agent registry, uh, whether we're talking about Russian state actors or Chinese state actors, uh, this is something that Australia has put into place and makes a, a great deal of sense. At the same time, an inquiry answers the broader questions. We've had uh, leaks, uh, and the, the question is whether these allegations to these leaks are true or not. These are answers that Canadians definitely need to have. And so a public inquiry can accomplish that, and we're talking about a tight time frame. It isn't something that should should go on and on. It, it should ensure uh, within a year that we have the answers to all those questions and can move to put further tools into place to protect our democracy. No, no one doubts that the, our federal elections, our elections have been uh, free and democratic, uh, but there are concerns that it may, uh, they, they may start to get less so unless we put in place that, that full range of tools Mm-hmm. To, to guarantee our our democracy and our free and fair elections. Uh, Mr. Julian, we had uh, Kareem Alam on our show a couple of days ago. Mr. Alam um, was the former chief of staff to the present Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. He is also uh, the camp. He was the campaign manager for ABC Vancouver and was the former campaign manager for Kevin Falcon's run for the leadership of the BC Liberal Party here in British Columbia. He's been involved in uh, federal conservative politics as well. So he's been in in and around this issue for a very long time. We had him on the show a couple of days ago talking about um, foreign interference and he talked about the need for higher level of security when it comes to background checks on on public servants and elected officials. I want you to just take a listen to what he had to say. 
But this isn't just about meddling in elections. This is about meddling in the day-to-day -day responsibilities of government. For example, on November 7th, Ken Sim and the entire council were sworn in. They took an oath of office. It's the bare minimum standard for security clearance uh, or security clearing that you, that, 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 that you can do. On that same day, I became his chief of staff. No one did a criminal background check on me. No one did a foreign interference check on me. I didn't have to submit any uh, conflict of interest papers that the councillors and the mayor did, but yet I have access to all the most sensitive documents the city has and I get to participate in all the in-camera meetings. And that goes the same for the entire civil service in the city of Vancouver and the entire civil servants in the province of British Columbia. And that should be a concern. There needs to be a mechanism where provincial and municipal governments and political parties can receive uh, information that are relevant to protecting our sovereignty. I bring up this comment from two days ago. It seems to me beyond uh, China and India and some of these other uh, nations that have large diaspora populations here, we actually have to spend the dollars to build an infrastructure to address exactly what Mr. Alam uh, is alluding to, not just uh, uh, federally, but municipally and provincially as well. Well, I, I would suggest a public inquiry is something that could, could get to the bottom of whether whether that is a concern around public servants. My public servants are, of course, subject to a whole range of other uh, vetting process. The concern that's been raised uh, over the past couple of years is the possibility of state actors, state agents, uh, or, or, or foreign governments, like the Russian government or the Chinese government, trying uh, to influence uh, the path of Canadian elections and ultimately who, who is elected. And, and so I, I think the idea of a public inquiry can, can go beyond uh, simply elected officials to other, other uh, people, including public servants. I, I would suggest that this, this hasn't been something that has arisen quite uh, as often as mm -hmm. the concerns around uh, state actors uh, really trying to push uh, certain um, a certain narrative, and, and whether that's the, the revelations that we've seen, the allegations we've seen over the last uh, few weeks in the Globe and Mail and in Global News mm -hmm. uh, around the Chinese government, or the concerns, particularly last year, around the, the so-called the convoy movement that took over downtown Ottawa, caused a, a great deal of misery and distress, and, and, and were promoted by Russian state actors. Uh, the, these concerns need to be analyzed in a public inquiry. Whether it goes beyond that, I think is, is a valid point, and, and certainly this is one of the things that could be considered by a public inquiry. Uh, my final question to you, there have been academics who've written letter, letters collectively who are quite concerned uh, about the focus. Uh, as you said, there's been other nations, not just China, but there's been a focus on the um, East Asian population in regards to this broader discourse, and people are concerned uh, that this may lead to greater racism. Some of you have talked about McCarthyism, not the fact that reports are being done, but too often they're relying on unnamed security officials and sources. And, and that is part of the challenges of journalism sometimes when you are doing these stories that people don't want to uh, deliver their names. Do you worry at all that, that we are making it difficult for certain communities when you have reports like this coming out, of course, heavily vetted, probably within a news organization, but they're coming out with just unnamed security officials who are making this allegation. You can see the impact it's had on Mr. Dong, as we heard in that soundbite at the beginning of this conversation. Are you worried about even a subtle form of McCarthyism occurring in this country? Absolutely. And I've actually raised this with CSIS agents when I've met with them and, and raised the concerns around uh, white supremacists, far-right extremists. We're seeing certainly that 
Uh, that emerging, as we've seen in other countries, uh, we had the conservative uh, MPs meeting with uh, uh, neo-Nazi groups, the AFD, uh, three conservative MPs met uh, with the AFD, which is connected to the Russian state uh, state government, a very strong ally of the Putin regime. And and the, the CSIS agents haven't been able to answer my questions about concerns around extremism. We've, we've had uh, an outbreak of, of hate, a number of uh, murders of, uh, caused by Islamophobia and racism, uh, not just in Canada and the United States. And so uh, the, the issue of how this is sort of trying to target uh, one group of the, the diaspora is a major concern. Uh, my, my concern around CSIS and whether they're taking the threat of far-right extremism uh, seriously is is another uh, the NDP motion that was voted on today and passed by the majority of MPs specifically points to the diaspora and providing supports to the diaspora whether we're talking about the Iranian diaspora that is where there have been threats by the Iranian regime against Canadians of Iranian uh, origin or or any other diaspora in Canada so foreign interference has to be taken in a, a larger context and, and I think part of this uh, for Canadians is, is to look at other types of extremism activity uh, that, that may, may be having uh, co- concerns or uh, uh, forcing the, the arising of concerns in Canada. We need to ensure that there is considered a difference between Canadians of whatever origin mm-hmm. and those foreign state governments and foreign state actors that are trying to influence our elections. Uh, Mr. Julian, thank you so much for your time today. Always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.